Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 90. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you been doing, Fooleman? Good. Uh, do you have a void in your life this week? Do you have a strange emptiness in your evenings and in your heart that you can't quite seem to fill? Because I do. That's how I'm handling the bye week. I, I don't mean, know what to do with myself. No, my, mine's been good because I have the NHL All-Star festivities now. Oh, I mean, yeah. can you really ask for anything better? <laughs> I love that. I mean, look, and to be fair, the All-Star festivities are mostly, you know, they're for kids. They're for people yes. to go and have a good time. That's terrific. And I'm glad it works for... They're for is... kids and the local city that it's being yeah. held in. And that's it. Exactly. And that's fine. And, you know, whatever audience it has, I'm glad if they're happy. Uh, it does nothing for me. Like, I actively do not watch any of the All-Star game ever. And, you know, it's just not my kind of thing. Um, so there will be very little All-Star content from me on this podcast, and I'm guessing from you. Yeah, it's accurate. Yeah. So, in lieu of that, because, again, the Leafs were off this week for their bye week, we decided to do a mailbag podcast. We've done this a few times in the past, probably about every six months, where we solicit questions. And every time I'm like... I hope we get enough questions. And then half an hour later, I'm like, Jesus Christ, we got so many questions. Uh, we got a lot this time. I'm a little worried that if we answer everything, this will turn into a three-hour podcast, which is probably pushing it. We're going to try to be crisp. We're going to do as many as we can. We're going to stay on task. This is probably a good time to emphasize how grateful we are that people do listen to us, that people care enough to ask us what we think about stuff and then listen to the answers. It is kind of crazy to me that we talk every Sunday and that like a few thousand people apparently listen to it. So sincerely, thank you so much. And uh, I hope you enjoy this mailbag podcast and we give somewhat satisfying answers to some of them because we're going to disappoint anyone who asks us about a television show. <laughs> All right, let's get started. All right. This is our first one from Mayor Out Loud. Why is Freddy? That's all. That's the whole question. It was suggested that we read this as Freddy Goche. Freddy Goche is a law unto himself and a creature outside of time, so I'm not sure any of us can explain it, but more likely this was about Freddy Anderson and his recent goaltending struggles. Do you have any thoughts on that off the top? Everyone always asks why is Freddy, but they never ask how is Freddy. <laughs> mm. I nearly spat up my energy drink there, thank you. <laughs> um, the truth is is that goalies are really hard to understand and the deeper you get into the analytics side of the game i think the more you wind up thinking shit i'm not sure i know anything about anything uh dom lachishan at the athletic had a neat article about this a couple weeks back trying to look at the goalie market and he found that it was pretty inefficient there was a very limited correlation between the amount of money a goaltender makes and the performance that goaltender provides. It's just kind of a crapshoot. There's a lot of up and down and variation. Uh, steady Freddie Anderson, because he has been steady for most of his Leafs tenure, has been about as reliable as I think you can expect. He's been pretty consistently a good starter. There's been down months, obviously. There's been the infamous October slumps that we've had three years out of four. But by and large, he's been good lately. He's been not good. I can't point to an obvious reason, and it's possible there isn't one. Maybe he has a nagging injury, maybe he has an equipment issue, maybe there's just a lot on his mind, maybe he's following the U.S. impeachment a little too closely and it's keeping him up at nights, I don't know. 
but the truth is it could be any number of things that add up to that tiny little drop-off in performance that's enough for an extra goal against every couple of nights, and that's all it really takes to move you from good starter to disappointment. All we can really do is trust that he's going to regress in the direction of his career average. I don't think that there's a solution on a white horse coming in, and there are some subsequent questions on that topic, but I think the bottom line is Freddie's probably a good goalie, and we have to hope he gets back to that. Yeah, I, I don't have a ton to add uh, onto that because, as you said, the, our, our knowledge of goalies is, you know, pretty rudimentary still. Um, it's still, as, as Dom has pointed out, a pretty inefficient market, at least on the whole, um, which can be taken to mean that either people don't know how to evaluate goalies and they're investing in the wrong goalies, or that just goalies in general, even if you're investing in ones who are better over time, are, are so... Uh, volatile in their year-to-year performance that you still get very little correlation between how you're paying someone and, and the results they actually provide so yeah I, with, with freddie it's it's kind of you kind of have to not worry about it because it, it's almost like it's like the impending heat death of the universe it's like yeah you can try and do things to to fix it but at the end of the day you know for most people it's out of our control like i can't control whether uh freddie is going to start putting up a 920 soon Right. And if he doesn't, we're screwed anyway, so I might as well just enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. There's not really a lot to be done about this except hope. And I know hope is not a strategy, as the cliche goes, but in this case, hope is the only strategy. Because I don't think that there's an intelligent one where you go out into the goalie market and buy a starter right now. Right. And, and like that's obviously the coaching staff and Freddie himself are, yeah. are going to be work. It's not like you would just say, okay, I, yeah, whatever, I'm going to regress soon. Right? Like, the, I mean, maybe some players think that, but I think more realistically players and coaches are always trying to fix fix quote-unquote shooting percentage benders mm-hmm. or shooting percentage troughs and you know say percentage troughs and things like that and then you know through the nature of doing that and also randomness they get back to to what they usually do but for us on the outside and for kyle dubas i don't think there's a ton you can do yeah i'd agree with that and you know that's kind of the proposition you accept with goalies is that they are half your team Unless they're bad, and then they're all of your team, as the saying goes. So we kind of just have to hope for the best and hope that he's able to sustain himself in a good mental state. I'm hoping the bye week will help with that if all there is to it is just he needs to get back to feeling good about himself and his performance. Then maybe a week off or a week at the All-Star game will help. So, yeah. Our uh, next one up is from O-Dog's assistant. What does the Leaf Defense Corps look like next season? This is the trick. Uh, I have to default to the boring answer. And yet I think that there's an excellent chance that by next season, the Leafs have acquired somebody. Like, I don't know who it's going to be. I have a few possibilities, but I could be wrong. My instinct is Muzzin Hall is going to be a pairing. I think they are going to extend Jake Muzzin. Then you have Morgan Riley anchoring another pairing. And then you have some combination of Travis Dermott, Rasmus Sandin, and Timothy Liljegren taking up the other three spots in some combination. And then, of course, Martin Marincin is actually your 1D, but we won't mention that. At the same time, hanging over that is, are they going to acquire somebody? Could they make a trade? They might well. And, you know, there's a reason that it's been much discussed. So, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the, the simple answer and the boring answer is often the right one. So, 
you know, if, if you're asking me to put money on it, I probably have something pretty similar to what you put down. I, you know, so there's been talks about the Leafs kind of going after another defenseman, um, which I guess overlooks a, a couple things. The first is that they've invested a lot of assets into their defense already, right? They traded a first Carl Grundstrom and Sean Dursey, and then um, Nazem Kadri and Kale Rosen, and maybe mm-hmm. there was a pick in there. I forget the exact mechanics. All of that was to address the defense, and we also got Kerfoot out of that, of course. So, you know, it's not we didn't use those assets entirely for the defense. There was some upgrade to the forwards there, but we've invested a lot of resources into our defense already. Um, now, if we're going to invest any more, the reporting has been pretty clear. It's going to have to be Kappen and Janssen or Kerfoot. Makes mm-hmm. sense. They're the only kind of mid-tier players on the team. You're not trading any of the top four forwards. No one else um, below those three other guys have any actual value. Mm-hmm. Or, or we wouldn't want to trade them. Like Zach Hyman has value, but he's on. He's making two and a half mil, and he's worth more than that. So why are we trading him? Right. Um, so, yeah, it's... If something happens, it's going to be um, with one of those three. But then I think the other thing that people forget, and actually Kevin Papetti of uh, MLHS and PPP has pointed this out, uh, where if the Leafs acquire someone else, like they're running into a situation where they suddenly have like seven defensemen who they you know, sort of need to play next year, mm-hmm. you know, barring any other movement, right? Where you have, and, and that's if they extend Musson, which it appears they're trying to do. Yeah. They right. So not, but... But then we keep the guy your discussions are ongoing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then if you're not extending Muzzin, the guy you're acquiring now is essentially just taking Muzzin's role next year. Right. Right? So And then you have Sandine, who I think the plan is clear. He's going to play in the NHL pretty much the rest of this year. Certainly, you'd hope he's an NHLer next year. Mm-hmm. Same with Liljegren. Uh, like you'd hope to, certainly hope he's an NHLer next year. That doesn't mean you'd book a spot in the top four for him, but you don't want to block his progression with someone who potentially isn't that who isn't going to be a real difference maker for you. Right. Right. Um, Dermot is a question mark, but he's uh, an RFA, meaning the odds are he's going to stay on the team. Justin Hall just signed an extension. Mm-hmm. Morgan Riley, you know, I think we commented last year that if you're going to trade Morgan Riley, last year was the time. Yeah. Right. And realistically, there's, there's a lot of off-ice reasons why that can't happen, right, or why that won't happen, where Riley's, you know, part of the leadership on this team. He's the last remaining link to the um, kind of pre-Matthews era, like the, the, the Carl the Nonis era, really. Um, he does all this stuff in the communities, by all accounts, you know, a great guy, great ambassador for the team. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not... Trading him is like... That, that feels like a move you make when you want a quote-unquote culture reset or something. Like, it doesn't seem like a, a hockey move that happens very often. That doesn't mean it shouldn't happen, right? I, as we said... Riley was overvalued at the end of last year because he had an absurd year that was very clearly not going to be repeated. He hasn't repeated it, as everyone predicted. Um, but, yeah, it's... You know, you quickly kind of run into a logjam when you're trying to acquire more defensemen for, for the Leafs right now. Especially if they're left-sided defensemen. So yeah. it's it's unclear really what the best direction there uh, is to do. I think what the Leafs are doing right now, or reportedly doing, makes sense. And then you kind of make a call between, you know, mystery defenseman X and Muzzin, depending on if, if one's a left side or right-sided uh, idea. It changes the equation a little bit too. So, 
Yeah, to answer, going back to answering the question, this is a very long-winded answer. My bet would be the most, would be your answer as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the way I could see it changing is us acquiring a defenseman and then not re-signing Muzzin. That's the most likely change I see from what you suggested. Yeah, I think that that's, that's certainly fair. And it is possible, also, when you're talking extension with Jake Muzzin, you're also trying to figure out his price, right? Because that impacts how you're going into the trade deadline. Right, and You'd it's like also, to have an answer to this question by the time the TDL rolls around. Yes, and it's a negotiation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you want to, you don't want Muzzin and his agent to be like, hey, you, you guys have nothing else. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, you're going to kick the tires on other guys and say, okay, well, if I can get Jonas Brodin, just to pick a name that we've talked about before, yeah. right? You know, that, that means I have I can be less desperate to, to pay for the declining years of Jake Muzzin in free agency. And Muzzin, you know, I th we both think very highly of Muzzin, but mm -hmm. there's a decent chance his contract doesn't age well, right? Because he, he's probably going to want some years. This is his last real big money contract. Um, he's a physical defenseman who could potentially drop off pretty soon. He has all the things, or at least a lot of the things, that make GMs want to overpay a guy, right? He has that cup experience. He's physical. He's tough. He's a, someone who your stats team is going to get on board with and your head coach is going to get on board with as well. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that are trending in the direction of give this guy a hell of a lot of money. And... I'm very torn because I want to keep him because, again, there are good reasons to like him. I do like he's, him. I think, he's a good player. He's a good player. Yeah, and I think Muzzin and Hall, this might be a little premature because the sample of them together is only so limited. But I think that that can be a solid NHL second pairing for not an insane cost. And I think we need that. So it's kind of a question there of where we want to go. Someone asked us at some point whether Jake Muzzin could have declined, by the way, to go on a conditioning loan to the Marlies. Um, that sort of slides into the next question. I want to add that I can't find that question now, but I distinctly remember seeing it. Uh, he could have declined, yes. You can't be loaned on a conditioning loan without your consent, as per Section 13.8 of the CBA. Uh, Jake Muzzin went. He played one game for the Marlies uh, on Friday night. And now he's been recalled again. So that was fun. <laughs> um, and on a related note, there was a question from one of the, I don't know, seven or eight Mike Stevens that populate leave Twitter. This was by Mike Stevens. He says, you don't think you guys can spend 45 minutes talking about Jake Muzzin on a conditioning loan? You're not trying hard enough. We could. Don't even challenge us. We could. We absolutely could do that. But we take mercy on our listeners. So the next one is from Stan Juan Pa, if I'm reading that correctly. Why are the Coyotes so frustrating? Is it literally just because they've been a legit 1C away from being disgusting for years now? Uh, I'm not sure that's true. Is this person a Coyotes fan? Uh, I don't think so. I think that they're farther away than that. It depends what you find frustrating about the Coyotes. I have to say, speaking personally, what frustrates me about the Coyotes is that John Cheka has turned into like an analytics punchline and the Coyotes get used exactly the same way that like right-wingers in the States use Venezuela anytime someone suggests like a left-wing policy. They're just like, wow, well, that's socialism and look what happened in Venezuela. It's like, oh, well, that's analytics and look what happened in uh, Arizona. And it's like, well, hang on. People can intelligently use analytics. People can intelligently have moderate left-wing policies. And that might be just specific to me, but I find it annoying 
John Chaka, to be fair, has kind of a tough road to hoe because he doesn't have any money to work with. And so he does a lot of trades that Catch likes to call trading a quarter for 26 cents. And so I do think there's a point to be made there. They haven't had like a real home run franchise. I'm going to stabilize everything draft pick. Dylan Strom was their, probably their best bet and he didn't really work out for them. And now he's a 60 point guy in Chicago. So it kind of sucks for them. But I think that there are a lot of things running against them. They can't really out and out tank because they're a little too good for that. They don't have enough money to really improve in free agency. Uh, and also they're not a super desirable destination by most accounts. I think they're trying. I don't think that everything they've done has been questionable. I just think that the structures in which they operate make it really tough for them to win any other way than like a dynamite lottery hit. And they haven't got one. Yeah. Um, with Arizona, I think we commented about this in the summer that they've made a lot of bets on guys kind of hoping they would come good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they did, it's kind of like what the Rays do in baseball or what the Rays did in baseball in like the late 2000s, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, you had these guys who were like pretty promising and they signed them to deals that if the player panned out and hit like their 85th percentile or above outcome, that would be a really good deal. But then a lot of those players just really haven't done that. Right. And in their defense, I was critical of the Clayton Keller signing, and he's had a very good year, especially from a play driving perspective. And that was a weakness of his um, before. Mm -hmm. Right. So th that and, you know, that fell into this archetype of, of that sort of deal where, you know, he would where, you know, if he if he comes good and if he you know blossoms, then it's a sick deal. And if he just kind of stays the same or stays on the path that he's currently going on. It's not a great deal, and the hope, if you're Arizona, is, well, if these guys don't take a huge jump, we're kind of not going to do anything anyway, so, you know, we'll, we'll just be a comfortably mediocre team at that point. Um, so, it worked with Keller. I did, it didn't work with some of the other guys that they have on their team. Yeah, I mean, I will say, I was kind of iffy on a couple of them, and none of them look unbearable to me. Like, the Nick Schmaltz one, I'm a bit like, okay. But, yeah, like, you but know, it, it's, it's not it's just, awful. It, no, but it's just, it's a bit too much money and a bit too much term for a guy who isn't amazing. Yeah. Right? It's, it's um, by no means Christian a devastating Dvorak contract. It's just not It's kind of similar. One. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, so I don't I, know, if, if Jacob Chikrun really pans out the way that everyone once hoped that he would, then maybe that is a really good deal. I'm, I'm a little on the fence about that. I am, you know, I get the appeal of big defensemen who can skate pretty well. But, yeah, it, it is interesting in terms of a team-building strategy because you can see what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it. It's just, I think you called it a, a David strategy over the summer, you know, from the David and Goliath concept. It's like, yeah, they're always going to be up against it because of the disadvantages they have as a market. And so you can see why they take big swings like trading for Phil Kessel. Like, trading for Taylor Hall, mm -hmm. except, you know, now they're hanging around a playoff spot right now, despite the injury to Darcy Kemper. In a weak division. And we should also mention, they were unlucky that Nick Chalmerson got hurt. He's probably their best defenseman. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've, they've had some bad luck, for sure. And, of course, who can forget the devastating injury to Marion Hosa that we know has crippled their franchise. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, y you know, the thing is, is that I can see why they did... A lot of these things, as we're saying, and yet, you know, they're a bit, they're a bit 
long odd strategies all around because again they don't have a great strategy that really is going to work and pan out here yeah so getting guess, stefan was a very good deal yeah stefan was um, good and stefan's a, really good a player. very good player the only thing um, is, i will say is if, if he's your first line center that's a problem and yes yes that's kind of how that's gone so he, he's he's I th we made this exact comparison in the summer he, he's a nazim kadri player yeah if he's your third line center, you're stacked. If he's your second line center, you're doing okay. If he's your first line center, you are thin. And the Coyotes have been a lot closer to thin. Insofar as they're frustrating, I guess it would be because uh, they have these strategies that are understandably a lower chance to pay out. So I guess that would be our answer. Yeah. Uh, this one I'm assuming is directed at me from Kid Kawartha. Do you own an actual Jester's hat? And if yes, under what specific occasions do you wear it? I don't. And you know what? That's a branding failure on my part. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm going to go and buy an actual Jester's hat. And I don't know when I'm going to wear it because I'm a 30-year-old man. I can't exactly show up to the office in it. But I'm going to get one anyway because what the hell? My brand is strong. Uh, this next one is from Dan Puckett 20 If Carlton was a real polar bear and he was hunting you both, who do you think would be eaten? Uh, I'm gonna be real here. Me. Oh, I was gonna say. I was gonna say me. Really? Didn't you do like distance running? Yes, but slow so, distance. So running. how are you gonna win, or how are you gonna lose? Like, okay. You just have to outrun me. Yeah, but I'm slow. I never had speed. I had stamina. That was it. I just had some right. of applauding persistence. Okay. okay, so I guess how far are we away from Carlton? That's a good point. Um, he's hunting us. Polar bears, I'm assuming, don't have a hunting range beyond their field of vision, right? Like, they're hunting in the abstract sense. But if they're hunting us, I assume the bear can see us. Carlton can see us, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming he's pretty close. And so, first of all, I'm, like, out of shape now. I used to be, like, a distance runner. Now I'm, like, you know, I try to run three miles, and it's an effort, man. This paunch is settled in around my midsection. So, yeah, I don't think I'm going to have the speed. And, you know, like, you're younger than me. You're live and athletic yeah that's <laughs> it's an overstatement <laughs> your blog athletic is the point um <laughs> so i don't so i'm not i'm not sure but if the maple Leafs pr team is uh, listening we're willing to make this happen <laughs> come on oh, what's in it for us we'll risk getting eaten by a bear um this is from a uh, former site writer clark aitken uh is Sidney crosby underrated almost we kind of came on the verge of saying that last podcast, and I think that there is almost an argument, which is kind of funny because he's like consensus at the least a top five player in the world. And yet I'm like, as you pointed out, there's more of an argument for Crosby is still better than McDavid than it might superficially appear based on points. So you can almost say that he is a little underrated from that perspective. Yeah, he, I mean, the the thing is, Crosby's he, he, he's been in this position where, for most of his career, he's been the consensus best player in the world to most people. But then there was always this manufactured narrative of, oh, X person might be taking Crosby's crown, and then they just never were that close. Like, it was Giroux for a hot minute, then it was Taves oh, for a little bit. Oh, right? God. Uh, so, and then that just didn't really happened and then when mcdavid came in everyone was expecting it to be mcdavid and then he got injured his rookie year and couldn't really you know strut his stuff to the degree that um 
we would have liked at least that that early on. McDavid might still be the best player in the world. I mean, certainly not controversial mm-hmm. to state that. Um, his offensive impact is just absolutely bonkers, right? I, I, like, I'm comfortable saying McDavid is a better offensive player than Crosby right now. Yeah, it's it's whether you believe Crosby's defense is good enough to, you know, make up for that and. Last year, 1819, Crosby turned in basically, you know, as we've covered, a Selkie quality um, defensive performance. Yeah. If you believe that that is kind of just what he is now, then I think you have a good argument for Crosby being better than McDavid. Now, Crosby's defensive numbers this year haven't been as good, but it's been 22 games and he's been, you know, coming back from injury and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it is always tough to suss out this defensive impact, which I think is partly why people default to points. Yes. As much as anything, because, you know, they're easy to count. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, I I think there's there's an argument. I, th- I think Crosby's career is underrated. Um, and we've talked about this a couple times, where it's just, he, he, he was in the midst of a prime that was absolutely insane, and it was cut short because of concussions. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think we'll, we'll look back on Crosby's career, you know, decades from now. And he will retroactively be considered better than people probably consider him right now. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, certainly, generational player is probably an overused term, even granting there are a lot of ways to define it. He is a no-questions-asked generational player, in my opinion. I think he's been the best player in the world all around this century, so kudos to him. Uh, this one is from... This one is from... Toronto Adam said, is the first player to score over 1,000 points for the Leafs already with the team? Or will we need to wait longer for the milestone to be hit? This is something that's interesting because the Leafs have had players who have had 1,000 points in their careers, but never just their Leafs careers. The leader is Matt Sundin, who had 987 points for the Leafs. Uh, Sundin played a few seasons for the Nordiques, and then... Allegedly, he played half a season for the Vancouver Canucks. I don't think that actually happened. That sounds uh, that's kind of annoying that Sundin didn't get there with us. Yeah, because he was so close. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, for his career, he had 1,349 because he tore the league up when he was playing for the Nordiques in a high offense era. But, yeah, so for now it's Sundin. I'm going to say yes. I'm not 100% on who it's going to be. I think it will be one of Marner or Matthews. But I think one of them is going to do it. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're both young. They're both going to be on the team for a while, I think. So, and, and it seems more, just as important, it seems like we're in an era of, you know, increasing offense. Not that yeah, it's I've, like, yeah. not that it's like 80s levels, but if you ask me this question in the mid-2000s, it's, it's very different, right? Yeah. And so, Sorry, that, that was my, my laundry telling me that it's done, uh, if you guys heard that jingle. but uh. <laughs> Yeah, if you have heard a slight and faint clicking earlier in this podcast, that was Arvin's laundry. It's okay, we're real people with real domestic tasks, but we're going to move forward. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it will be one of them. I kind of find it hard to see Mitch Marner um, not staying with the Leafs longer term. I know that there was a lot of upset and turmoil, but I think he just wants to be here, and I think that as, will as long as we're paying him, as long as we're paying him eleven like million dollars, dollars, he wants to be which here. We probably will. Um, <laughs> you know, that was yeah. 
Um, I will say, wow, what a good thing it was for Mitch Marner's PR that um, he's having a good season. And two, like, now everyone is, like, kind of back on side with him after that bullshit from Babcock. Everyone was like, oh, no, okay. We actually kind of understand why he wanted more money now. Yeah, um, and so, I mean, I, I actually I wrote an article um, mm-hmm. right after he signed, essentially saying, like, you know, Marner has contract has set himself up for expectations that he might not be able to to match. And the, mm-hmm. basically the argument was, like, a lot of things went right last year for Marner to put up 94 points. Yep. Uh, and this year he won't hit 94 points, mostly because of injury, but his point pace has been very good. And part of my argument was, you know what, I don't, like, the, the amount of players who have sustained 12% uh, or 13%, you know, 5v5 on ice shooting percentages, it, it's a very, very small list. It's almost nothing. Right? Yeah. Um, and Marner had I don't a 12.7%. Like, I don't think you can really consistently do that in this NHL. I mean, except. maybe <laughs> I'd have to look at a few players. There's a couple that come to mind. McDavid might. Evgeny Kuznetsov is another guy who has just absurd on ice shooting percentages year after year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, with Marner, I'm like, okay, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure he can do that again. Well, he had a 12.7 on ice shooting percentage last year. He's a 13% on ice shooting percentage this year. Um, so. I don't think my take was necessarily awful. It was overly conservative about maybe the impact that Marner might have on his teammate's shooting percentage. I'm still not 100% convinced he can do this year in, year out. But Mm -hmm. if he is that type of player where he reliably increases the odds of his teammate scoring, like to this degree, um, he is intensely valuable, right? And then actually worth his contract. Yeah, he's a fantastic player. And I did... This is because we're going to have to talk at some points about um, us being wrong about stuff. I, I think it is also worth noting. Um, I don't think we ever fell into the trap where we like hated Marner personally. No. Which I think some people did. And I think we always said, look, he is a really good player, even if he's going to be an overpaid one. And also him being overpaid is kind of a factor of what the league was like when he signed. I think it's hard to argue that he wasn't. But... Uh, league offense is on the way back up again this year. I was wondering if the last couple seasons were a fluke, but it doesn't seem like they are. And so as that tide goes up, and as Mitch Marner sustains being really, really good, you know, maybe we do have to revise upward what he can sustainably do. You know, that's back on the table, potentially, for him to be a 90-plus point player year in, year out. And if so, God bless him. Yeah, and, and I mean, funnily yeah. enough, this year, what's driven Marner's kind of high on-ice shooting percentage, it's not 5v5, but it's, like, basically every other game state. Like, at 5v5, he his on-ice shooting percentage is, like, 8.38% this year, mm-hmm. right? Um, I was using hockey reference data before, which I think uses just even strength. Um, so, at 4-on-4 four and, four and 3v3, his is way higher. Last year, mm-hmm. at 5v5, he was at 11% which is, again, very high. That's, like, near the tops in the league. Um, and even higher at 4-on-4 four and 3v3 four and, three three and so on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. Like, it's this is why it's a, I, I still find it a bit weird to evaluate Marner in this way because, you know, if he's a... If he's someone who is getting... Ups, who, who's, whose value is partially in his ability to increase on-eye shooting percentage for his teammates, like, that would be most valuable at 5v5. Right. Right, because um, four and four and three v three a happen less often and don't happen at all in the playoffs in the case of three v three, and uh, b you know the baseline shooting percentage is higher there, right? So 
mm-hmm. you, you, there's less marginal value of someone increasing on a shooting percentage from there. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that develops over the course of his career. So my take is more right than it seems. Again, I'm right in my analysis. <laughs> Never forget. Oh, and by the way, just um, to put some actual numbers on it, this is currently, and again, we are only partway through the season, so this has time to change. But this is the highest scoring season since that crazy 2005-2006 year coming out of the lockout where the league just called a billion power plays a game. And a ton of people got a ton of points. Other than that, it would be the highest since uh, 1996. So there is a rising tide going on, and Marner is riding it, and he's also being really good. So God bless him. Uh, this is from Fat Sundin. Please rank every episode of Soap from worst to best on a scale of one to five Richard Mulligans. So obviously we can't do that. But it is I understood episode- like one third of that sentence. I had to look up what Soap was. Soap is a parody of soap operas that ran from 1977 to 1981. I have seen none of it. Now, I might try and defend myself and say, okay, that was like a kind of obscure comedic parody sitcom that ran before I was born. But I would also like to emphasize, I don't even know what's going on with like any television that I should know. Like, I'm out of touch. I watch The Leaps. Uh, I watch... Peaky Blinders, but it takes me like three months to get through a season because I don't watch it that often. That's kind of it. You know? I'm just out of touch. And so, I apologize to John. We have to concede failure, but we're so far from being able to answer this question that it's kind of absurd. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This one is from uh, a writer at Pension Plan Puppets, Briggs Dew. The god of hockey visits you and Arvind and says that all of the sins of the Leafs and their fans will be absolved and he will have the Leafs win the cup, but you must sacrifice your current favorite Leaf. We asked Briggs to clarify this and he was like, oh no, the person you're sacrificing is dead. And I'm like, we can't murder somebody. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean <laughs> a standing cup is not worth that. No. Um, you know, and I, I was kind of like, well, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs, but no, it's a murder. You can't do murder. It's not acceptable. In terms of, like, would you trade players away? Yes. Would I trade players away to Edmonton? I mean, is that better or worse than murder? I don't know. But... Yeah, I mean, so this question is more interesting if it's, like, would you trade away your favorite player? So, for me, that would be trading away Neatander. And I would would do it. But, Mm -hmm. my God, the takes would fucking suck. It's, like, the worst possible way to win a cup, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. I would still do it. Because, yeah, you know, like, flags wow, what a price to pay, though. Because now I'm envisioning the fucking Twitter after that happens, right? Where it's just sort of like, see, you can't win with players like that. Oh. Like, I know this isn't going to happen, and I'm still, like, fictionally upset at how bad they would be. Oh. Anyway, yeah, I mean, I would trade Zach Hyman. I would feel bad about it because I feel like he deserves to be a participant in a winning Leafs team, but you know. Um, So this next one is from Mahesh. Who do you think is a better or more likely trade partner for Toronto? The Flames or the Oilers? This is an interesting question in terms of, okay, what does either team have that we want? Well, they both conceivably have right defensemen they might be willing to unload. Uh, I'm not sure 
how close either of them is to actually doing that. Adam Larson is kind of the obvious name for the Oilers. And why, then, why would they trade him though? That's what I'm thinking, right? Like, I mean, set, still... set aside that they overpaid for him by trading yeah. Taylor Hall. Like he's a good defenseman on a reasonable contract. Mm-hmm. And you know they're still in the hunt for the playoffs this year. Dunking on them aside, they've hung around a level of competence now, and you don't generally give up pretty decent right-handed defensemen unless you get an overpay for them. And so I don't know that I want to overpay for them. And then they don't have a ton else that they would give up that I would want. Like, sure, I would take Connor McDavid, but obviously that's not happening. They don't have a lot of natural trade assets. The Flames are kind of stacked at defense at the moment. They seem to have more defensemen than they really know what to do with. Maybe we could get TJ Brody or Travis Hamonic. Yeah, I, I I'd say the really Flames. Want... Yeah, they well, make... Part of the reason sense, I'm but saying I don't that, really want either of them. <laughs> well, no, nor nor do I. But part of the reason I'm saying yeah. is that saying that is we know that there was at least some level of interest from Dubis in Brody, right? Because of mm-hmm. the reported um, trade that would have sent Kadri there. Yes. And so I think they're the um, more likely. Yeah, now, this doesn't get talked about enough. That mm-hmm. trade would have been a fucking disaster. It would have been really bad. Like, and it, the it, other piece in it was Mark Jankowski, who is not within a hundred yards of as good as Alexander Kerfoot is. Um, If you want to look also, okay, this is just kind of funny. So like last season, Jankowski had 14 goals, 18 assists, 32 points in 79 games. And you're like, okay, so that's kind of a pretty respectable bottom six or eight. This year he has two points in 39 games. (laughs) I know that points are the be all and the end all, but like that would probably sting a little bit. Um, Yeah, and Brody is... He's one of those guys, he looks better um, by RIPM than he does by uh, by isolated threat. He, he looks like actually a decent defenseman by mm-hmm. isolated, or by RIPM. Um, but there's there's enough there that I would be like quite hesitant. And having Jankowski as opposed to Kerfoot is, is a significant downgrade, I think, to me. So, oh, yeah, that's disastrous. So I think that's really bad. <laughs> yeah, like I I don't think Brody might be an upgrade on Barry. I don't know for sure, but to, as we said at the time, I think the real thing of that trade was getting her foot. Mm-hmm. The real benefit of that trade. Yeah, I, I would be really upset with that trade, and it would have been a much darker podcast. Maybe I would have been less annoyed than I've subsequently been at Barry at times. Um. By the way, I don't know that we'll get a natural opportunity to kind of hawk this, but you had a really good piece looking at Barry, um, just talking about the numbers, the eye test. I encourage people to take a look at that if they want a more fulsome look at him, because as we've mentioned on here, his numbers have improved lately, even though I think both of our eye tests kind of don't like him. So, yeah. Uh, so next up, yeah, so our answer to that, by the way, is probably the Flames, even though there's not a hugely appealing deal that jumps out at me. But you can certainly see how one would happen. Yeah. With Brody, it's also like his um his numbers without Giordano, I think, have been really, really like iffy at times. And mm-hmm. that's what gives that's what gave would give me pause if I was um if I was acquiring him. Yeah, like I have to look into it more. I, I don't. Star, but yeah, yeah, I'm not saying you know I, I don't. I'm not educated enough on Brody to really give like a super strong opinion. But my initial impression is not amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so this one is from Mike McInnes. Uh, for all the fun trade talk, is it even worth doing any upgrades to this team? Normally we laugh at GMs who trade features to shore up a bubble team, but that's us this year. Uh, by the standings, that's true. I don't think the Leafs should at all be looking at rentals of any description this year. Like, I like I don't want any part of that, frankly. I don't like rentals in general, to be honest, but we're not at the point where I want to consider them. It seems Kyle Dubas fun. agrees with you, right? Because yeah, well, he, that's not know, something he's I've ever really looked into. Yeah, <laughs> and so you know, is it uh, worth upgrading from... this team going forward? Sure, but you should not be doing anything that makes you worse next year to improve this year. Yes, agreed. Um, what I was going to mention there is, aside from kind of Barry slash potentially TJ Brody, they would have they're both rentals, I suppose, because both of them uh, expire uh, yeah, next next season. True. Um. Mm-hmm. And I think with both of them, uh, you don't really want to be a part of their next contract. So I think it would have been a pure rental. But as discussed, the other aspect of that trade was getting the young center on cost-controlled value. Mm-hmm. Um, as for this question, yeah, no, I think I think it's a valid question, honestly, um, because depending on how well, how much you believe in the the Keith Leafs stats, right? You can convince yourself that hey, this is a really good team. Or at least like mm-hmm. on a you know comfortable playoff team. If they get in, they are actually one of the best teams in in the league. Like they'll they'll end up being, um, kind of a a low seeded, you know, a low seeded team no one really wants to play against. Mm-hmm. Right, similar to the Kings in their in their cup runs, not that dominant in terms of uh, shot differential and things like that. But you know, the, if if you think this team is good as is then there's a decent argument for saying, look, we have injuries right now. We're getting Muzzin back. We're going to get Riley back soon enough, right? In a, you know, uh, eight weeks, let's say. Mm-hmm. We can roll with what we have. Under Keefe, we've been a good team. Why continue or why spend assets to um, make what was most likely going to be a marginal upgrade? And that's certainly almost always the case if it's a rental, right? It's almost always yeah. a marginal upgrade. Um you know, unless you're going really big game hunting, and I don't really think any big game exists on this trade market anymore without Taylor Hall. Uh, yeah. Maybe Chris Kreider uh, is a good, very good player for sure. Not sure. Uh, some of the Rangers people I follow have been like down on him this year specifically. I'm not sure whether that's legit or you know if he's just getting a bit unlucky or you know some combination of the two. But yeah, I I think there's a very good argument for the Leafs standing pat. Yeah, and I suspect that if they do make a trade, it will be with an eye to the longer term. We've already heard from Bob McKenzie. When they're looking at defensemen, they're looking at guys who have at least a year left, maybe two, maybe three years. So, yeah, I, I think that that's kind of kind of where we're at. Uh, this one is from Shadowblades337. Who is one lesser discussed Leafs prospect that you are each higher on than most people and why? I don't know if Semyon Durargachinsev counts because he's been much discussed and he's still a long shot prospect. But I like players with lots of skill and for all of his flaws, he's got a lot of it. We'll see how he translates to the pro game because that's going to be kind of a struggle for him. But I like him. So So this is a prospect we're higher on than Than most average? people, than the popular opinion. Um... I guess the only, 
my opinion on prospects is, is entirely governed by the popular opinion <laughs> right like i no. The, I mean, realistically i don't follow prospects very closely at all so i mm-hmm. in most cases i don't have strong opinions about prospects besides or just in general unless they're like an elite prospect who i've happened to see like a decent amount or at least have a, a really robust um a really robust kind of stats track record that we can dig into so the only guy that really qualifies here for me um, is a guy I, I ranked higher than most people did in the top 25 under 25, and that's Mikhail Abramov. Mm-hmm. He's had a very good year um, in in the queue. I think he plays for Victoriaville. Mm-hmm. I I wish I could tell you more about him, but everything I know is just you know cut and paste from scouting reports. You know he's a he's a good pass first center uh, who this year has um, increased his goal scoring and his shot production and his shooting percentage um, a significant amount. He's always been a guy who has a, a quote unquote good shot. So it's good to see mm-hmm. him, um, I guess, display that. Uh, Briggs do at PPP wrote a, a nice article that goes into detail about how um, Abramov has changed from last year to this year. So he he's the only guy I'd say I, I'm really higher on or was higher on than the average person. But even then, it was, you know, little more than a gut feeling. And like I kind of like the look of this sort of player. And, and I, I think, broadly, I think um, players on bad OHL or bad CHL teams can get undervalued because they won't have the, the raw point totals to that prop them up. Mm-hmm. I think that that's probably a, a fair answer. You know, I always try to make this clear when we do the top 25 every summer. We do our best. Like, we read a lot. I read a lot anyway. We do a lot of research. But I don't watch junior. You know? I've seen, like, two or three junior hockey games in the last three years. Like, I just do not watch that because, you know, frankly, I would need to get paid to. There are only so many hours in a day. And so I try to keep informed, but that level of information is just from reading and listening to intelligent people. Uh, Scott Wheeler, who is, you know, kind of a bet noir of a lot of hockey Twitter, I nonetheless think is a pretty sharp scout. And he has a thing on The Athletic right now that's ongoing about prospect pools. So if you have a subscription, I would really recommend having a look at his work uh, just as an update. And then this summer, we will try and put together and collate as much information as we can find on all these players. Um, This next one is from uh, our old friend Acharya. And sadly, I think it's another one of those ones we're going to be incompetent to answer. It's should Jean-Luc Picard adopt Baby Yoda? Maybe. He seems like a nice guy. I like Patrick Stewart. I have seen neither of the shows that would give me the frame of reference to answer this. <laughs> I haven't ever seen any Star Trek show. I saw like the first half of the Mandalorian TV series. Oh. Um I it was okay. Yeah. Yeah, and it gets I don't know. Maybe this makes me like a I, not that I have like super um, you know, intelligent opinions about, you know, TV and movies and stuff, but it's like not enough really happened for me. Mm. Like the a lot uh, the middle three episodes, like I think episodes four, five, and six just kind of dragged. And it's like okay, cool, right? It's it's whatever. Um, it it was a good, not great show. I have no desire to finish the rest of the season. Yeah, that's fair. I think a lot of these shows, it's not always clear that they have sufficient material for the episode run that they were purchased for. Where mm-hmm. it's like you have these kind of slow developing episodes where not a lot happens in terms of the overarching plot. And you can say, well, those add definition and character development and all that shit. But 
sometimes they just drag. So not having seen that show, but I can certainly believe that it would it would happen that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm also someone who just doesn't watch movies in general because I think they take too long. And I, I understand the irony of being a sports fan and <laughs> and saying that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not someone who really loves uh, TV shows or movies. Yeah. I like movies. I love going to like the theater and paying $19 for popcorn that costs like five cents to make and all that sort of stuff. I like the experience of that, but I don't have the patience to endure too many TV shows. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe I'm just a product of the, the fast-paced millennial generation. Uh, this one, next one is from Alex Goshen. What are these leaps? If the team doesn't make the playoffs, is Dubas on the clock? I think all GMs are born with the knowledge that one day they will die. Let's put it that way. They're always on the clock. I think this year he gets a bit of a mulligan. And then next year he and Sheldon Keefe have to take a real run at it. And if next year is a mess, after the end of this year is a mess... I would not have total confidence in Cal Dubas's job security. And if he's still around after that, he's certainly going to be on the hot seat. That would be my guess. Yeah. Um, I guess. So for, for what are these current leaves? I mean, our last five podcasts are trying to answer that very question, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then the truthful thing is we, we don't know for sure because there's not enough information yet. I, I, I tend to think that we are a good team that nonetheless has some flaws and it's currently made to look a lot worse than they are because of bad goaltending. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm very comfortable saying we're like a top eight team in the league at this point. And mm-hmm. I, I genuinely do believe that. I think when you look at the numbers under Keith, even though I have quibbles with the system, even though we've had shifts with Marner, Matthews, Nylander, which end with a Martin Marinson point shot tipped by Cody CC in front of the net. Um... <laughs> Like, even though I have quibbles with that sort of thing, like, the top line numbers under Keefe are good enough that I'm happy with the team. I think we can be even above that. Um, I We do give up really, really high-end chances against. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we might be worse than our expected goals indicates because, one, we give up a lot of good chances, which are typically, you know, when you think about kind of the win probability of a game, it's better for you to generate two shots worth 0.5 XG typically than to generate 10 shots worth 0.1 XG. Mm. Um, just because of the distribution of how goals are scored. Mm. Uh, the, the the increased variance uh, associated with having 10 shots of, uh, of 0.1 XG essentially means that in a lot of those scenarios where you actually score a lot of them, they're kind of quote-unquote useless goals. Like scoring the ninth of those 10 goals versus all 10 of those doesn't really matter. You've, you've won the game most, most likely anyway, so it doesn't actually help your win probability, right? Because hockey's yeah. a low-scoring game by, by nature. Um, so you, you know, we might be overrated slightly by that, but I, I do think we're a good team. Um, as for the as for the stuff you're mentioning about Dubas and, and Keith's job security, yeah, I think short of a disastrous, you know, end of the year, they are completely safe this year, and next year we'll need to show progress. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, this next one's from Kono Emo sixteen. Can we please, for the love of the hockey gods, switch to a wins and losses standings format like every other sane sport on the planet? 
Keep OTLs as the first tiebreaker for all I care. Just don't reward a team like Boston for losing the best. Uh, it's always annoying when anything benefits the Boston Bruins, isn't it? Like, that's inherently a flawed system, just on that. Uh, I I've been converted to the three-point system. Uh, like, a lot of people have been advocating that, where it's three for a regulation win, two for an overtime or shootout win, one for an overtime or shootout loss, zero for a regulation loss. I think that that's a sensible way to do it to account for the fact that we're trying to get more games that end in wins and losses, but we're also kind of juicing the game to do that by having three on three and a I think that's the sensible answer. Yeah, I'd be fine with that. I even think, you know, the idea of um, games being of different values to one another isn't mm -hmm. inherently necessarily stupid. Like soccer has that, European soccer, where it's three points for a win, one point for a draw, zero points for a loss, right? But the right. thing is, in those situations the game that is worth less points is one is is the is the tie is the one that you don't want people going to often right so typically mm -hmm. there's always going to be a team that is pushing to make sure they don't get the draw right right whereas in hockey the game that is worth the most points is the one that ends in a tie and then a gimmicky way to resolve the tie right yeah. so you end up with something that kind of perversely incentivizes okay, let's actually play for the title. Like, both teams end up being okay with that because there's still the chance of getting the additional point, right? So um, I think getting rid of that is probably the most important thing. Um, Micah McCurdy's had a kind of good Twitter thread about this where he, he just points out that the last few minutes of a tied game should be the most intense, mm -hmm. right? Because it should be kind of like almost all or nothing there where, you know, there should be something at at risk, right? But at this point, there's it's so safe there and as a result you actually very rarely see go-ahead goals late in tie games yeah there's a natural conservatism that's incentivized by the way that we've set the game up and that's that is a problem it this makes it a worse product there's a lot of people but it's true it's a real thing um teams play more carefully so yeah, yeah basically there are many valid point systems that work the nhl has not chosen any of them <laughs> A triumph of organization. Uh, so this next one is from, again, Shadowblades. Uh, Everyone has been talking about trading for Georgiev, but he's just been decent at best at the NHL level, except when he plays the Leafs. What are your thoughts on trying to acquire a goalie like Demko? So that would be Thatcher Demko of the Vancouver Canucks. Or even trying to sign a guy like Markstrom, Jacob Markstrom, also Vancouver Canucks, in the offseason if he's available. Demko's pedigree, I think, is so good that you're not getting him for... A cheap price either he's yeah. really well thought of um notwithstanding you know he has an okay ish to mediocre save percentage this year but like i think teams are still looking at demko as a mint goalie up and comer and you're certainly paying a lot for potential so i don't know that there's an advantage against georgiev and i have to say georgiev looks he does look good like i think that people have kind of swung back and forth on him between the crazy reported price that he will cost and then people saying he's not even that good well he is good he's just not you know we're not going to give up Casper Kapanen to get him so I mean I'd say shake the leaves on all of this stuff I don't think you're getting Demko especially cheap and I think a guy like Markstrom who is functioning as a starter if he goes to unrestricted free agency and then he gets market price there you're basically saying, okay, I want to replace Freddie long-term with Jacob Markstrom because you're not going to sign two goalies as starters. 
So I don't know that I love that. You might try and upgrade it back up and get a little more insurance than Michael Hutchinson gives you, or you might trade for a 1B guy in the hope that maybe this guy will bloom. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure I quite see it on this one. What do you think? Yeah, uh, no, I I, I agree. Um, I don't I don't know either. I don't know enough about either of them statistical track records to know if they're a good bet um, necessarily. But Demko, I think, will be expensive than Markstrom. I mean, I, I think his NHL track record is, is quite good, isn't it? And he's going to be up, as you said, for for contract. It's probably not going to be a super cheap one. So I would expect Vancouver is going to try to keep him. Yeah, so yeah. See. So I don't think either are realistic targets for us. Yeah. Um, this next one's from David Dye. Do you guys think Marner's point totals are inflated because when he's on the ice, the play almost always runs through him, especially on the power play? Or is this logic flawed? I think that's actually an interesting question. Um, what do you think about that? Um, I guess, okay, so on the power play, I, mean, I guess the answer is yes and no. Mm-hmm. I think this system is set up in a way that is advantageous for Mitch Marner to get points, but I don't think that's in like some done in some perverse way where it's not also in the best interests of the Leafs because the reality is Mitch Marner is also a wonderful, wonderful power play quarterback, and mm-hmm. you know running the power play through him might very well be just the best strategy, right? So I guess it means his point totals are inflated relative to like if you just dropped him in Washington system. Right, Washington's power play system, then yeah, he probably wouldn't get as many points. But his skill set is such that he is he's incredibly good at doing that and running the power play through him is typically a good idea for most teams. Right? Um at five V five, I don't think his point totals are inflated at all by that. They might be inflated by, you know, as we've talked about, the high on ice shooting percentage that is still kind of unclear exactly what um exactly what influence he specifically has on that. Uh, certainly, like last year, he was helped by having John Tavares, who is a very notably above-average shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say his point totals are inflated because the play always runs through him. I think that's a credit to his skills that he is able to be the focal point of offense, both at 5v5 and 5v4, um, and generate shots and chances and goals for his team. Yeah, I think we actually talk about this a lot in the context of players who are perhaps underutilized. We talk about guys like Jeremy Bracco or Dmitry Timoshov, who you can conceive a situation that they could get where they get a lot more points than they do. But the point is, why are we giving it to them if that's not best for the team on the whole? In Marner's case, he deserves all the opportunities you can give to him because he's so good that you're probably maximizing your team success in addition to his individual totals. It's a bit, you know, like they talk, we talked last year about his point totals were probably greatly improved by playing with John Tavares because John Tavares is a superstar center. But John Tavares also got a boost in goal totals from playing with Mitch Marner and they deserved to play together because they were really good. So I think that this is actually something really interesting to look at in terms of like a usage percentage. And I think you do see it more in basketball on really bad teams where there will be a certain, there's a certain impact of somebody has to get the points almost. I think you do see it on hockey again on really bad teams. You know, I remember the tank Sabres one year, Tyler Ennis had like 45 points because everyone else on that team was an AHLer. So like Tyler Ennis was the man. And so they kind of had to use him a lot. 
I think in Marner's case, you know, he's certainly being used in a way that shows to his best advantage and leads to high production, but I think that that's a good thing. So, yeah. I guess that's where I would get to. Um, yep. This is from our, our old friend, Totally Offside. He just said, why is Georgiev? Um, I'm going to punt a little bit on this one because I feel like we've talked about Georgiev the last two podcasts now. I mm-hmm. mentioned it briefly earlier. There was a long thing and we are cut for time. Love you, Todd. Um, even if we disagree uh, violently on offer shoots every year. Um, and <laughs> this is actually sad. But this is from Hardev, who's uh, one of our fellow writers at PPP. And this is the toughest question we got. What is something about the Leafs that you've disagreed on this season? And we were racking our brain. <laughs> so I, I actually I actually do think about one... I can think of one thing, and it actually isn't Leafs-related. It's hockey-related. Mm-hmm. I think we still disagree about the value of points. Yes. You know what? That's true. Because I'm, I'm a bit of a, a caveman on that one. I, w- I would say your position is more sense. nuanced than caveman. Well, you're very kind. But yeah, I, I'm still... A, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. That's probably true. So, so just to explain, um, like, um, yeah. I, I, not that I think points are completely useless, but I think they're they are a very bad allocation of credit of goals, mm-hmm. right? And that's not to say that players who get points are invariably bad. I, I think Connor McDavid's the best offensive player in the NHL, uh, and he gets a crap ton of points and. The two obviously coincide. Players who get points are often, almost always, good offensive players. But they are not the only good offensive players. There are very good offensive players who do things that don't necessarily result in them being one of the last three people to touch the puck uh, when their team scores a goal. Right? Mm-hmm. So my thinking is that I, I don't care that much about points. I care about how people drive goal differential. Right. Right. Um, and I think I'm open to the idea that someone can do that without really being a good point scorer. And like the advantage, the, the example I always use, and it's an absurd one, but if there was a player who guaranteed his team would take 100% of the shots when they were on the ice, he would be a better player than Wayne Gretzky, even if he never scored a point. Mm-hmm. Because you would literally never get scored on with this player. Now, obviously, such a fictitious player doesn't exist. But it, it's kind of, it's clear that there is such that you can think of a player who does that, right? Even if that mm-hmm. player isn't real. So in real life, there might be players who can approximate that to some degree. And that that's kind of my thinking on that front. Yeah, I, I think that that's fair. And there's a certain cautiousness that I bring to dealing with advanced statistics, even though I kind of embrace them. I trust what smart people tell me about them. But the truth is, a lot of the math that goes into things that, like a McCarty does, that... Evolving Wild do, um, it's beyond me. You know, I don't have the basis to really verify that in an intelligent way. And I'm not always confident I can break it down. And so there's a certain amount of trust that these people are doing the right things. And I trust them. I think that they are intellectually honest and they're very smart people. But at the same time, these numbers come out and every now and then they'll toss up something that I find very hard to accept. And I know from experience, you know, I at one point I overrated Connor Carrick because he had terrific Corsi playing with Jake Gardner. That's a simple example. But points are a bit of an offensive sanity check for me. Now, I look at the inputs. I look at shooting percentage. I look at shot rate. I look at those things. But when a guy is getting a ton of points, 
there's a, there's a level at which I think that that indicates enough of an involvement to really give me a lot of pause before I kind of trust that those are empty calories, so to speak. Like Thomas Vanek is maybe the most extreme example of a guy who had a ton of points and there was a lot of statistical evidence that he was probably giving a lot of it back on the defensive end. But I usually am very hesitant with those kind of conclusions. Maybe that is purely uh, an anchoring bias because points are still so dominant in how we look at the game. Um, yeah. That may, that may be all it is, but yeah. So yeah, I think that's good. Um, maybe this is a good jumping off point because I got a, a longer question in, uh, in GM from James McLeod, who is a writer national post worth reading uh on technology in general but he had kind of a thoughtful long question i won't read the whole thing just because we're trying to keep this podcast as tight as possible but he looks at arguments about is this player better than that player you know just overall people want to know um and all in one numbers can sometimes give us a guide to that but it is tough and it's He's wondering, are we going to move into a direction where we get a better way of assessing overall value in terms of players who are good passers, good shooters, as we get better data, which we hope that we will do? Um, what will those key attributes be in terms of figuring out what really matters and what metrics will help us measure that? He's kind of asking in a general way, like, where are we going in terms of measuring the impact that players have on the game. And I think that that's a very broad question, but I do think it's interesting. We've heard that tracking data is coming in for the NHL playoffs. It doesn't sound like we're going to get access to a lot of it in the public sphere. And that makes me question whether it will be really very much use at all, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I don't, yeah, I don't necessarily trust that a lot of the people who are going to get access to that data are going to be able to use it in kind of the rigorous, constructive way that we've seen uh, really good people in public do. You know, because there's nothing to verify it. There's no way to check their work. Um, you just have to kind of trust what the people on the NHL network are telling you. So I guess to start with, I'm pessimistic about the data that we're going to get to lead into this. But Yeah, I, I am as well. And... I'm pessimistic about how it will be used. I mean, we, we we can already see on the broadcast, they're very interested in telling us how fast players are shooting now, which is cool. That's that's a neat trivia. Um, there, I think there are better uses for it than, than that. Yes. And I think that um, maybe this isn't always as clearly understood if you don't like follow the stat wars to some extent that you've seen, but there are people who sell snake oil and have done so to teams and have claimed an ability to predict outcomes in hockey that just isn't realistic. Like you are seeing, you will see some things that are kind of black box and that are very dubious. We wrote once about sport logic who for all I know are totally legitimate. I'm not accusing them of being snake oil salesmen by any means, but we can't always do a lot with what they're measuring because it's not public. We can't verify it. And so as much as anything, it's are we going to get data we can actually do something with? And I think that that's, that's going to be key. 
if we get stuff on pre-shot movement, I think that's always been kind of the the white whale in, in a lot of the XG. Like, we, we feel confident we can track a lot of stuff that is shot-based. But we know that certain shots are more dangerous than their mere location would suggest because they're coming off a cross-crease pass. Like, if you could even just account for passes that go Royal Road, that go through the crease in the slot... I think that that might make a pretty considerable difference. And I've read credible arguments that, especially on the penalty kill, blocking those passes might be the best thing you can possibly do defensively. That would be the thing that would most interest me. And knowing what players are driving high-quality passes when they're on the ice, as much as high-quality shots, which is what we have now. I, I think that that might be something, if we ever get it, that would help us get a, a better idea of both offense and defense. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And yeah. I think that would also help us unlock the players who are not necessarily great shooters themselves, but create great chances for their opponent or for their teammates, right? Um, the way hockey analytics kind of works now in, in terms of how we allocate credit for shooting or for scoring is that we say, okay, you know, a shot from a certain position on the ice, that's a certain shot type, whatever, has a certain probability of going in. And if it goes in more often than that, off the stick of this player, we credit it to that player. So we say Austin Matthews is a great shooter. His shots mm -hmm. go in from the same position as other people a lot more often than other people have them go in. And I think that's it's not controversial to, to say that Matthews is a great shot. I mean, shot. I mean just look at, it, look at him superficially, and you're like, wow, that's a rocket. Um, mm -hmm. But... You know, are there players who, when they pass someone the puck, irrespective of who they pass to, that shot has a higher probability of going in? Yes. Right? And um, we suspect that's probably true of certain players. Right. Uh, Sidney Crosby is the obvious example. But, y yeah, you know, we can't necessarily verify that in a, in a robust right. way. Right. And it's also, like, is it is it that a pass from Crosby is more likely to turn into a goal or that Crosby is making a lot of cross-ice pass? Or is it that Crosby makes more valuable pass types or that a cross-ice pass from Crosby is more valuable than a cross-ice pass from Zach Hyman? Right? Wow. That's another... Um, no, but that's another set of... <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's not true. clear that that's the case. It might be the case that, you know, conditional on Crosby passing the puck to player X, cross-ice, and Hyman making the exact same pass the goal probability might be exactly the same. It's just Crosby makes that pass a lot more often because he's mm -hmm. a better passer, better, sees the game better, all that sort of stuff, right? So th it'll help us answer these questions if we got access to the data, which we don't have. Um, one thing I've been playing around with, and it's something that is kind of tricky, I think, to do well with the data we currently have, is in my head I've called it activation index, and it, it's... I guess a, a tongue-in-cheek name of how involved are defenders in offense by team, mm -hmm. right? So one way of the most natural way to look at it is what proportion of shots do your defensemen take, right? Uh, and then another, the next level is what proportion of expected goals do they take? Are they just taking point shots? Is it driven by volume or quality or both, right? right. Um, and then and then this is obviously motivated by the fact that the Leafs defense is now very involved in their offense. Right and superficially, mm -hmm. it seems like they're getting in very good areas, um, which is both good and bad because you know having players in good areas is good, but you don't really want Martin Marinson in those areas. You want Mitch Marner or John Tavares. Mm -hmm. So, 
if you had tracking data, you'd be able to kind of not just look at shots, but look at all actions that players make in the offensive zone and see where defensemen are making their actions, where, where they're passing the puck from, where they're receiving the puck. And that could tell you spatially where, you know, what teams are more aggressive about their defensemen than others. Yes. There is one related defensive note. I would really love to know whether a lot of the coach beloved and analytics derided defensemen are having a significant impact on passes. I would be really curious to know if while you're on the ice with Ron Hainsey or something like that, if the passes that are being completed while he's in the defensive zone against him are of a lower quality. You know, if he's allowing only static shots from shooters who don't have a lot of motion behind them, if he's allowing shots that are superficially from somewhat dangerous locations, but that are static, you know, that are arising from a an offense that has not been able to generate as much movement because he's doing something effective. When I think of the limitations that we have in evaluating defensemen, that's one of the big things that pops into my mind as something that we can't quite measure as well as we would like with the current limitations of the data. And I think if we could incorporate that, we could probably get somewhere more intelligent, or at least it would start to be easier to understand the appeal of some of these guys for reasons beyond the eye test, beyond we've seen him doing that and it looks pretty good. Uh, and, you know, there are teams that may well be tracking this manually. We know that most teams are doing something. You know, they have information that they keep to themselves. But we also know that sometimes teams do things that don't seem very smart. So we uh, we don't have a way of really evaluating that decision-making other than noticing that maybe it exists. In terms of putting this all together and coming to an all-in-one metric, I do wonder if we're ever going to get to a point where we should really be confidently saying player X is better than player Y based on a small difference in woods above replacement. You know, hockey is such a fluid game. That doesn't mean we can't know anything the way that some people seems to insist that it does with regard to analytics. But it does mean that piecing out responsibility is always going to be a bit fuzzy. You know, it's like cutting up a pie in terms of like there are always kind of flakes and it's messy and it's not like a defined slice. That's how I would put it. Yeah. That's that's a terrible metaphor, but I hope you see what I'm getting at. No, no, I do. I think that makes sense. So, yeah. I, I hope that that was uh, a little responsive. Uh, I thought that that was a, a really interesting question for James in terms of where we're going. And I hope, bottom line, I guess, that we get some good data that goes into the public and then smart people can do stuff with it and tell me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, also from Acharya... Please discuss your top three hockey podcasts aside from your own. I'm only saying this deep within the pod where it's safe. I don't really listen to that many podcasts. I listen to uh, audiobooks usually, and then I listen to our own for quality control and then wince at the sound of my own voice. But that's about it. Yeah, I listen to a decent amount of podcasts, but very few other hockey podcasts. Mm-hmm. So there I are, don't have, yeah, there, there's a few that I like listen to every now and then I listen to uh, Leafs Geeks. I listen to Everything Leafs, which is Kevin Petty's podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I occasionally listen to the PDO cast, although not as much recently. Um, yeah, those are the only ones I really listen to with any 
regularity on the hockey side. Um, I listen to a lot of soccer and basketball podcasts and then also a few um, stuff besides sports. Yeah. Um, so I think that's interesting. We're probably punting a little bit. I, I will say, I you know, I have listened to to Ian's podcast, The Leafs Geeks. I think, you know, he's, he's very good at what he does. Uh, obviously, Steve Dangle is kind of the, the granddaddy of Leafs podcasts. Uh, we've talked about real good pros uh, before. I think they're always entertaining. Um these are all ones that I have listened to, which is more than I can say for a lot of the hockey world at large, so I would reference that. Um, this next one is from our boss, so we'd better answer it correctly. Catch a nap. If you have a cloning machine and you can only clone one guy and through a plot device to be explained in the next episode, your choices are Jack, Jake Muzzin and Zach Hyman. Who do you clone to make the team better? It's gotta I be have Muzzin. an answer. It's got to be Muzzin. It pains me a little bit because... We always end up saying, gosh, I wish we just had Zach Hyman on every forward line. We're so thin at defense that it has to be Muzzin. But... Well, and as we said before, that Muzzin's yeah. like the ideal partner for a lot of the Leafs defensemen. That's the thing, is we have so many mobile activated guys. If Jake Muzzin shot right, this would be done and dusted. Um, and even so, it has to be him, I think. I do also think that Zach Hyman is the ideal complementary winger for a lot of these guys. Yeah. Uh, Ilya Mikhaev maybe can do some of the same stuff. And, so he's and sort of, Pierre Engvall helps yeah. as well. And then Janssen is mm-hmm. good enough to survive on those lines as well. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. You can find a lot of totally acceptable answers to that. It's just, I think Hyman's a bit of a better fit, but yeah. So I, I will betray my, uh, my brand a little bit and say it's Muslim. Uh, Leafs win a cup or you win a million dollars. I mean, a million dollars is a lot of money, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Honestly, I, I go with the million dollars. Yeah. I'm not like, I'm wondering how small an amount of money it is before I'm like, okay, I'm okay with letting that go. A thousand dollars. Yeah, probably. And, and then it Although, depends. Like it, it depends on like your financial situation like I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where i would probably turn down a thousand dollars for a lease win but a yeah. lot of people wouldn't and i don't think that's like a problem <laughs> like that's you know no. money is important uh you should not sacrifice money for your fandom like to that degree i don't think if, it, if it's not no. something that you feel comfortable doing no i i mean it's just like you know like i'm i'm pr- pretty fortunate in a lot of ways that i'm like i can entertain this on any kind of level but like you shouldn't give up any significant amount of money. The only thing that gives me pause is it does occur to me I spend a lot of time on the Leafs and that they are apparently a driver of my mood and happiness. And maybe I'm overvaluing the money a little bit there in light of that. But, you know, money's good. You can exchange it for goods and services. Uh, That was from FT Smasher. Uh, And he was also the person who asked about Muzzin having to agree to the conditioning assignment. So the answer is yes. Uh, This one is from William McNeilander. It's a great name. A bad take segment, but Fuleman must act as the public defender for said taker. Oh, man. I don't think we have time to do this fully. I will just say, in general, if you have to write or talk on the internet for any extended period, and what you say and or write is preserved, I think it is a good and humbling experience because you will be wrong a lot more than you recognized that you would be maybe before you had to do this. It's a lot easier to kind of fuzz your opinions in hindsight 
when you don't have to go back and see exactly what they were. Yeah. So as a general defense for all bad cake people, we all have them. And if you think I wouldn't, you definitely would have them. We all have bad takes sometimes, is what I would say. And so we should come at it within a spirit of atmosphere of forgiveness and understanding. Except when people want to trade Nylander, those people are dumb. Yeah, exactly. Uh, This is from El Seldo, unban me. Uh, No. For some reason, we just haven't had Seldo on the podcast. And there's actually no reason for it. We probably should just do it, but... It's kind of fun now because he's annoyed at us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're doing it for its own sake. Uh, from Kevin Papetti, who we just mentioned, uh, our colleague, who were the five worst players to dress for the Leafs in the last decade? Oof. Ooh. Lots to choose from. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I'm doing this off the top of my head. Yeah. So, okay, Oren McLaren have to be there. Yes. Yeah. I, I think, like... Colton Orr literally couldn't play NHL hockey. No. I, I'm, like, I, I mean that, and people feel like I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. And I'm, I want to be clear. I'm putting him in a very different class from guy who was just an enforcer. Matt Martin is an enforcer. Matt Martin can play NHL hockey. I'll debate his contract all day, but he can do it. Colton Orr could not play at this level at all. Um, and so then you have a lot of guys who showed up at the end of the kind of failing and or tanking seasons like yeah the the, the 15 16 year i think is going to be the yeah. genesis of a lot of this stuff um but zach sill oh i, I could make okay. up names here no one would even know jared smithson <laughs> oh yeah it's terrible um if we're, um, if we're going for defensemen like because we have to include it's easy to find crappy forwards and crappier defensemen because every defenseman has to play at least a little bit but you can play a forward six minutes a night yeah, which, again, was what generally happened with Colton Orr. Like, you can hide them more easily. Yeah, um, so maybe... If we're looking for defensemen, man, Ryan O'Byrne sucked. Oh, he was terrible. Yo, oh, uh, Keith Ollie? Mm, <laughs> gross! Um, oh, there were some bad, bad players. I do want to remember, and uh, he does not qualify for this list because he had a perfectly respectable career, but I think it was... Was it Eric Brewer? who happened to be here for like 12 games, but yeah. they included his thousandth game. And he had a silver six ceremony. And even he was just sort of like, this is dumb. Like, <laughs> he, he, like, he was like the least enthused about it. <laughs> yeah. He didn't care at all. He was like, this is a waste of time. My career was over. Who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, that whole year was so funny for that. Um, I think, I think we've given an idea of just how bad things have gotten. At times, it's a combination of genuinely bad players on teams that were actively trying to lose by the end, and then t- players who were played way over their heads, like when we had Dave Steckel as our 1C for a while. <laughs> it was not like, like, he's not in this conversation, but I found that hilarious and insane. Um, man, it's been a rough decade, huh? Yeah, Renat Valiev, I think that's another one. Ooh, uh, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just going through our rosters now and just seeing... Um, yeah, we had a lot of guys who were like, like in the NHL games, they'd be like a 73 overall and they're like, they're actually quite bad, but they're just sort of there. Yeah. Like, like okay. So had I, a lot of, I'm looking at the yeah. 2010, 2011 roster at this point. Da- there's Daryl Boichi. I actually have no recollection of him. Um, I remember Daryl Boyce. No, oh, he Boyce. was a guy. Okay. Uh, he was, I don't know. It could be anything really, but <laughs> I do remember him. And he was, like, fine? 
I feel like we thought he was better than he was, which is probably true of, I don't know, everybody. There's there's a lot of guys here that I just don't remember, like um, Marcel Mueller. You know what? There were a lot of guys who were like, uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation is probably harsh, but guys who, when we were really bad and we just wanted to give them a nice time to get a cup of coffee in the NHL, yeah, yeah. those so guys they, were probably the worst. Like, they, Ryan Hamilton, God bless him, AHL yeah. captain, could not play. With um, with our friend Marcel, yeah, he played three games in the NHL, zero points, two penalty minutes, right? All three with the Leafs. So, <laughs> like, he's probably on the list, but, like, that's not a satisfying answer because... The real worst players you've seen are the players who are there, and they're just cockroaches. They just stay there forever, and you have no idea. Yeah, how. you can't get rid of them. Um, I do want to mention one guy from the Make-A-Wish Foundation, though, which was Andrew McM- McWilliam, who was not, like, an NHL player. He finished with 12 games, but he was a participant in what... Uh, Emmanuel Perry, noted statistician, said was the worst game that he had ever found in the modern fantasy stats era. It was the late season Leafs versus the Tank Sabres. And his conclusion was that those were the two worst lot rosters who had ever played in the NHL since 2008. And Andrew McWilliam got one of his two career points in that game. So I just thought that that was fun to share. Jamie Devan <laughs> uh, is another one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, he was a Colton Orr who got figured out faster, basically. Yeah. He was a Colton Orr, but born, like, 10 years too late. Yeah, I know. You know, these guys could have had an era. Yeah. And, uh, sadly, time and chance passeth to us all. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> most of this just indicates how fucking depressing 2010 to 2016 was. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so I hope that we've covered some ground there in this little walk down memory lane. Uh, this is from Alan... At Loser Points on Twitter, we've had him as a guest before. He is a frenemy of the podcast. We love him and also resent his stupid, successful hockey team. He asked, which of these indicates a greater degree of wildness? Hog wild, buck wild, or they are the same? It's hog wild. I think it's hog wild. I think buck wild. Well, no, but so I was I was like shocked at this because Alan posted the results of this poll and buck wild won. But I think there are different kinds of wildness. I okay. do think that there's like a qualitative difference there. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of like, hog wild to me just is like, you could be doing anything. Like I envisioned the 30 to 50 feral hogs just charging in and causing chaos. You could do anything and be hog wild about it. Buck wild. Buck wild feels like a contained stunt to me. You know what I mean? Like when you went buck wild... You had a discrete incident. Probably you took off your pants. Something got out of control there in a defined time span. Hogwild is a lifestyle. Buckwild is an incident. That's the <laughs> distinction that I would make. <laughs> okay, I, I can't top that. So uh, we'll I stick. feel very strongly that this is true, and I can't really justify why, but that's just how it feels to me. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm dodging a bit, but I hope that that's been uh, elucidating. Uh, this is from Soap Dispenser, which is a terrific name. Book recommendations. Um, so, I've read a few books that I like just in general. I also sometimes read fiction because I'm a recovering English major. I just read As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner, and I will go to bat for William Faulkner as maybe 
the best stylist who's ever written in English. He's not always an easy read, but if you like that sort of thing, he's extremely gifted at his best. So if that's not so much your thing, um, I have, I read a book a couple years back called Lords of Finance, and it was about bankers who kind of wrecked the financial system post-World War One. I thought that that was really interesting by uh, Liaquat Ahmed. And even though I'm not the most backgrounded in economics, I thought that it was both accessible and super interesting. So those are a couple for me. How about you? Um, I read a book called Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff recently. It's a fiction book. Um, really, really nice book. It's about a uh, short version. It, it's, it takes place in New York. It's about uh, a relationship between two people and kind of the lives of them before, during, and, and after. And it, it's well done and well weaved and gives you a good sense of how the different parties in a relationship can have drastically different viewpoints on it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I read uh, Cannery Row by Steinbeck recently. Oh, so uh, I, I enjoyed classics. that as well. All right. Um, this next one's from Will Colley. Why do you guys think that there's still a widespread perception that Nylander is either overpaid or just meeting his contract expectations? From, I think a lot of things go into that. We've talked a lot about Nylander, and so I won't go over that ground too much other than to say he is not some people's idea of what a hockey player should be. He does not appeal to certain ideas. The holdout, where he missed several months... Uh, stuck in people's minds as an act of egotism rather than an act of contract negotiation. Some people took that personally. And because, again, that's pretty rare to have a holdout that actually goes to December in Leafland. People thought that he was setting himself up as a superstar player. I think that's conditioned the way people talk about him. By any reasonable analysis, his contract is totally fine and I would say good. So, yeah, I I mean I, I think that hits the most of it on most of the nail on the head. People I think are in, in Toronto. There always has to be a scapegoat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that you know even the best hockey team is going to lose a lot during the season, and there's going to be times when you're going to have losing streaks and when you're going to have um, downturns in play. And Nylander is an easy target because he is the most expendable of the core players and also is the easiest to mock from a superficial, like, surface-level analysis point because he doesn't get the most points of, you know, mm-hmm. the Leafs' star players. Right. So I think it, it comes down to those two things. Yeah, I think that that's probably a good summary of it. Uh, This one's from Omar, who is another of our colleagues at the website. Uh, He said, if both were possible, Matt Dumba or Jared Spurgeon, who are both defensemen for the Minnesota Wild, it's got to be Jared Spurgeon. Spurgeon, I mean, Spurgeon signed an extension, didn't he? So I don't think he's moving for a while. No, I don't think so. I'm not sure Dumba is either, but he's having a bit of a down year and he's allegedly shocked. Uh, just since he's been much discussed and he's maybe on the market, Matt Dumba makes me uncomfortable as a trade target because he seems like Tyson Berry. He seems like the kind of guy who scores a lot of goals, and people like goals with big booming slap shots. Now, Dumba has not scored that much this year, but in the prior seasons, he was good for 10 to 15 a year. 
And I think teams overpay for a defenseman who score goals. I'm not saying Dumba doesn't have talent, because he does, but his on-ice results that aren't goals aren't great, and that makes me uneasy. So, aside from the fact that I think Jared Spurgeon is one of the best and most underrated defensemen in the NHL, I am kind of leery of Matt Dumba on his own account, because I think a trade for him will probably be more than he's he's worth, because he's got that kind of physical and shooting element that gets defenders overrated. Yeah. Um... This is from Shatner Shaman. Uh, 2020 Dem primary thoughts. Hashtag politics. Uh, I'll do this really quickly. Just I do. I used to follow American politics rather closely, and then Trump burned my brain. Mm-hmm. I wanted to shoot myself. But just in general, this is genuinely a wide open race, and I think that that's worth emphasizing because a lot of previous races have not been wide open. Joe Biden could well win. Bernie Sanders could win. Elizabeth Warren could win. It will be really interesting to see who comes out of the Iowa caucuses, because if Bernie Sanders looks very strong, you may well see a movement on the part of the Democratic establishment to try and stop him however they can, because he's considered quite left and not really much of a team player, and for a lot of reasons they don't really like him. I'm not commenting on his quality. I'm sympathetic to him. I think that he's on the right side of history on most things, but just in general... It will be interesting to see if Sanders gets strong and then if there is a movement to stop him and how that plays out. I think you already saw it a bit with Pete Buttigieg, who who fell back to the pack. All of this said, I think Biden is a weak favorite. He's more likely than anyone else to win the nomination, but he's not that likely in general. I'd take the field over him. So that's my little survey. Um, Evolving wild. Uh... (laughs) After I said such nice things about them, too, eh? They said, uh, they asked uh, previously and caused some controversy by saying, is there a worse overvaluing offender in Twitter forum trade proposals than least fans? There are too many of us, you know? So, I think we have the worst impact. But, uh, are we worse on a per capita basis? I doubt it. I think every team has endowment bias and they overvalue their players. But, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that if you hear enough from Leafs fans, they would probably drive you nuts. <laughs> yeah, I, like, very loud fan base, a lot of people. And then there's definitely, it's pretty easy to find the belligerent assholes of Leafs Nation. Yeah, there are some there are some genuinely awful people, and there are in all walks of life and fields, but you certainly hear a lot of them out of Toronto. So I get why people feel this way, even though I think it's mostly a function of volume. Mm-hmm. Um, from Bri Gray, imagine both of you taking a week off and you can have two of the least players taking your place and hosting your podcast. Who would you choose? I think Hyman would be one of them. Yeah, he would be mine. Not just because I, I like him, although I do, but he's also like, he's a smart guy. Yeah. And I think he would be articulate. Yeah, exactly. I feel like he could actually carry a podcast for the most mm-hmm. part like i think i think he could do do a good job as a host i think he you know fills in the cracks does all the little things that sort of thing um right. he can probably learn how to use GarageBand to edit <laughs> <laughs> um who would be the second person you know what i'd say i'd say freddie freddie's pretty comfortable in front of the camera so yeah i, I, I would go with him Neilander would be awful just doesn't say it enough Tavares no. would be boring. Riley would be a decent one. Matthews would be okay. Matthews would be okay if you got him engaged. 
Yeah. And I worry that this is going to sound like I'm talking about his game on the ice, but also just in general, you can tell what he's not super interested in answering an interview question, and he just says the word obviously a lot, and sounds like he's trying hard not to roll his eyes. I would feel the same way, for the record, in his position, but just, I feel like it kind of comes and goes for a guy who clearly has a lot of personality, but he often doesn't, you know, share it. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. So from mixed strategy equilibrium, can you do a deep dive on Dermot's numbers based on his top line possession stats? He seems to be regressing over time. Is that borne out by the deeper numbers? We can only go so deep in the limited minutes we are trying to use here. I would say that Travis Dermot's numbers this year actually are kind of fine in general. And we know he can clobber a third pairing. I'm still pretty confident he can do that. I think, you know, as he and Justin Hall have had to step up with injuries and be almost a de facto first pairing, he struggled. It's a big lift for anyone. It's a big lift for Dermot. I'm not sure he can do that. Maybe he'll get there. Maybe he won't. I don't know that I think Dermot is regressing, but I also don't think that he's taken a big step forward. I think we know he can be a quite solid number five defenseman. But I knew that a year ago. So. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, if you look at his RAPM and stuff, it's still pretty good this year. Um, mm-hmm. And his he, numbers are not as bad as maybe people think. This no. Year, overall. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. He had a period where, especially when he was with Barry, and they were kind of on a, a third pair. They were mm-hmm. killing it. Um, yeah. But, yeah, the, the question is, you know, what what is Dermot going to be when placed in a big boy role? And I think the answer is unclear. And I think with things like RAPM and isolated threat, I think one thing that's worth keeping in mind is you can view it as a measure of success within role. I don't, I know it's supposed to be context independent. I don't think it totally is yet. Um, I don't think it's necessarily possible to do just because of, at least not with our current data, with the way. Um, hockey is played it's there's such complex interdependent structures between teammates and opponents and timing of shifts and usage and all that sort of thing so i think it can get rid of a lot of the noise but not all of it and i think for some Mm -hmm. players their abilities and the results are going to be dependent on the roles that you place them in right and this was kind of the conclusion i came to about barry as well where you know I, I don't think you could ever use Barry as your top pairing defenseman, right? Even if he yeah. if he kills it in a third pairing role, that doesn't that won't necessarily translate to doing the same thing higher up in the lineup because his skills it's not like a linear thing. His skills can be used in different ways in different roles. So I think that's the big thing we're gonna have to figure out with Dermot. And luckily we have like a month to figure it out. But unfortunately we need him to do well because we do need the wins. Yeah, that's the thing, is we're not in an abstract laboratory doing tests on this. We're also trying to scratch for a playoff spot that we're not currently in. So, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing I would say about Travis Dermott is that maybe he hasn't met the hopes that we would have had in terms of taking a big step. Our hopes were always going to be high, because we need help. And we are hoping to get it wherever we can. I also think that Rasmus Sandin being kind of a shining star kind of takes away some of the glow from his competition. I think that's happened a bit with Lilligren, and it's probably happened a bit with Dermot, so. Uh, yeah. 
This is from Andrew Dubroy27. Do you think Kuleman would thrive under Keefe? Ah, my boy. Nikolai Kuleman. I think Kuleman would thrive under a lot of coaches, genuinely, because he's one of those guys who does everything at a competent level, and coaches love those dudes. I don't think it's coincidental that he had a pretty nice career, even though he had one really hot shooting season where he hit 30 goals, but by and large, he was a workmanlike third liner. Yeah, but I think he did everything hard, you know? He worked hard. I, I think he'd be able to, like Hyman and Mikheyev, he'd be a good complementary player on a line with two more skilled guys. Yeah, he's one of those guys who's good enough at everything and who also recognizes that he has to adapt himself, you know? He was quite successful playing with Grabowski and Clark MacArthur, who were probably both more talented players, in my opinion, because he worked with them. He's one of those guys who knows that he has to be flexible, and he's both willing and able to do that. So, short answer, yes. Uh, from Science Meditations, why is hit the puck hitting the goalpost crossbar not a shot on goal? Because uh, shots on goal are meant to track shots that would go in in the absence of a goaltender. Yep, exactly that. Yep. Uh, Joel Bombardier, could God create a hockey player so talented that even he, God himself, could not beat him in a game of one-on-one? That's what uh, Connor McDavid is, basically. <laughs> but you see, Connor McDavid has to play against Connor McDavid's defense. So, I mean, this is going to be goal, 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 exactly. goal, goal. Yeah, you can't do that. Uh, Thomas Aquinas has tried to answer this question for you, although he didn't contextualize a hockey game. But I would say the short answer is that conceptually, no, God cannot do that. Uh, this is from uh, Nick Antropov. I suspect it's not the real Nick Antropov, but I can't say for sure it's not. Uh, who do you think the Leafs go after to improve our decor, and what pieces do you think it takes to get that player or players? Unfortunately, generally? boring answer yeah. here, right? But it, it's exactly what we've heard. The only things that we can yeah. trade are that, that have value are future picks, which, you know, we're already out next year's first, or this coming year's first, assuming we... Yeah, we're going to make... We're not going to be in the top 10 of the lottery, most, unless we get a very unlikely lottery win. But we're mm-hmm. already out this year's first. The only other options we have for trading are... Um, those three mid-tier forwards that we mentioned, Kasperi Kapanen, Alexander Kerfoot, Andreas Janssen, prospects who we really don't want to trade, like Nick Robertson or Rasmus Sandin or Timothy Lilligren. And then in terms of targets, yeah, it's just Nick, Josh Manson would be good. I know Katya really likes him. Um, Jonas Brodin is a very, very good uh, defenseman. Mm-hmm. Guy, guys of that nature, maybe Jeff Petrie, if Montreal feels they're, they're going to, if they fall out of it. Yeah. Petrie would be good. He's I, another I, very good defenseman. Yeah, he's a good puck mover. The only thing is Petrie's age, but otherwise he's kind of the quintessential defenseman that we are accustomed to wanting. And I might say Jason DeMare, if that ever becomes a possibility. It will be those kind of guys, though. Like, I don't think anyone that we named there is the kind of guy that you throw a parade over. I don't know that anyone we named there is actually as good as Jake Muzzin. But it will be that kind of upgrade, where it's like a guy who can play right side obviously and then maybe can slot on your first pair with Riley is probably a second pair defenseman and overall ability is defensively reliable so yeah I I mean I, I like my pet pick of Jonas Brodeen but it could be a lot of these guys mm-hmm. um, from Jared Manila what right-handed defenseman or a package containing a right-handed defenseman would you consider trading Riley for uh, I mean the thing is, is that, like, the stuff that I want for him is probably not stuff I can get. Maybe last year there would have been a chance of getting Dougie Hamilton. 
but probably not in an organization that has Eric Tulski in it, I guess. And that's certainly not happening now. So I, I don't know that I can really come up with what I want, which is a top pair right-handed defenseman that I can see us getting. Yeah, nor, nor can I. I'm, I'm very bad at trade stuff in general because it requires you to know not only who are good players on other teams, but also how are they viewed by GMs collectively. Yeah, and there is some use in just listening to the chatter almost because the reporters say what you will about them do know who is maybe being shopped, who is maybe in a bit of low esteem in their current front office. We'd all love to get like Colton Preko or something, but more realistically, really good young right-handed defensemen are not super popular. And so, sorry, are not super popular to trade. They're very popular with the teams that have them. So it would be very hard for me to see us getting the the real upgrade that we want for a trade where we gave up Morgan Riley. Um, what would a lineup of the worst players to play on the Leafs in the last decade look like? I think we addressed that already. So, uh, Jack Burrow, I hope that you're okay with the answer that we gave. Um, this is another one from Luke B. Sauce. It's a bit related. Uh, what's your biggest qualm with the current XG and goals above replacement metrics? Conversely, in what ways do you find them the most valuable? And how are people using them incorrectly? So we touched on a lot of this, but... It might be uh, useful to look at that. This also, by the way, ties into another question. I've noticed you guys don't use metrics such as goals above replacement or wins above replacement very often. What do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of those models compared to, say, isolated thread or RPM? Do you have any thoughts on that? They measure general? different things, right? Um, mm-hmm. So goals above replacement is intended to be a all-in-one catch-all metric that summarizes a player's contributions to his or her team. Um, RAPM is more focused than that. It's more about which players have an impact on a specific target variable, which is often, you know, goals for, expected goals for, or Corsi for, something like that. So goals above replacement is more broad than that. Now, when people talk about goals above replacement right now, most of the time what they mean is evolving hockey's goals above replacement. Um, And it's, what I find it useful for is as a descriptor. So if I was making an all-decade team, like, NHL Network recently did, I would, the first thing I would do is look up, you know, goals above replacement. And if you did, I'm pretty sure like the top three are in the last decade are like Crosby, Datsuk, and I don't know, like Stamkos or something, right? Or Mm -hmm. you know, something like that. Um, Crosby, Dak, I know Crosby and Datsuk for sure are one, two. I don't know who number three is, but something like that would, that makes a lot of sense to, to use it. Now, what I think people make mistakes or way people make mistakes in using GAR and goals above replacement is it's intended to be descriptive, right? It's not who this player is. It's what has this player done. Now, Mm -hmm. over the course of a long period of time, those two kind of converge to one another because, you know, who you are over the course of your career is, is what you have done over the course of your career, looking backwards, right? But if we're looking at it in smaller samples, it's a bit trickier. Um, and one of the examples I use is Sidney Crosby's 2017-2018. He was a very, very good player that year. He was the same Sidney Crosby. You know, this was bookended by maybe his best all-round season in 18-19 and then another typically great Crosby year in 16-17. Um, but if you look at his goals above replacement in that year, it's like shockingly low. And the reason it's shockingly mm. low 
is because he got PDO'd that year, right? So he didn't contribute to goal differential really that year because he didn't have a very good goal differential when he was on the ice. But the reason he didn't have a good goal differential is because his on-ice shooting percentage was super low. And given what we know about Sidney Crosby, that's probably not his quote-unquote fault. It's probably just something that happened to him, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's a key mistake people often make when, when looking at Gar or in trying to interpret Gar, right? Like that, it doesn't, I don't believe that Sidney Crosby was a worse player in 17-18 than he was in years before, but he might have gotten worse results. Yes. I, right? I think that uh, in, in a very much more primitive way, because there are a ton of problems with plus minus, but you do see that sort of thing with plus minus where a guy has an awful minus year and it's almost invariably that he got PDO'd or he was on for a lot of empty numbers against because he's a six on five player and he's a power play specialist. You know, you can see a lot of those measures that add up to a goal differential problem. I'm I'm thinking of Evgeny Malkin, who last year was minus 25. And again, this podcast does not endorse plus minus. I'm just thinking of that sort of impact that you can see in terms of that player was not on the ice for uh, a great goal differential, but he's obviously a very good player. And so you just have to be aware of that when you're looking at a goal-derived metric, as you were saying. Yeah. Um, so this next one is from Robert Craig. Uh, does analytics quantify the impact of grit? So you have to, he says, define grit. If analytics does quantify grit, how is this achieved? If analytics does not quantify grit, what data would you need to quantify it? Here's a problem. Grit means whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. And that's one of the uses of that as a term. I think that has elements of uh, difficulty in knocking you off the puck ability to make plays under physical pressure. Both of those things, by the way, were things that the Sedin twins were really good at, who are not conventionally considered gritty, but I think it's gritty. And then there's also, uh, do you throw body checks? Are you intimidating to other players? Can you pressure them? And that's maybe a more conventional type of grit. I don't think analytics quantifies that per se, but I think that insofar as it's useful, it should start to show up in other things that analytics does measure. Like, are you actually driving play by your grit because you force worse passes from players who are scared of you? Yeah. I mean, who are pressured by you? That's the thing. Like, th- these top-end results, in theory, should capture stuff like that, right? And if it doesn't, mm-hmm. then you could argue maybe it doesn't matter necessarily or it doesn't matter as much as we think. Where if you're, you know, all tough in the corners and whatnot, in theory, that should lead to, okay, maybe you have the puck more or you know, your opponent has the puck less, you're able to get out of your defensive zone quicker, and that should mat- that should show up in having less or fewer shots to defend and things of that nature. So, yeah. you know, the, the goal is definitely for it to show up in top-line numbers, and th- that's one of the benefits of those sorts of things. And, I mean, I, I think people who do the quote-unquote little things, that matters, and grit's a part of that. Um, to use a basketball example, Kyle Lowry of the Raptors has... Basically, his entire career in Toronto been one of those guys who just has absurdly good impacts on scoring. Like, essentially the equivalent of plus-minus, except it makes more sense to use in the NBA because um, there's a lot more, you know, baskets in the NBA are much more frequent than goals in the NHL. Mm -hmm. And there's more, like, there's a lot of substitution as well. It's not perfect, but stuff like their equivalent of RAPM is a quite reasonable tool to use in basketball. And actually, it was originally, I think, designed for basketball. 
uh, and mm-hmm. then kind of ported over to, to hockey and inspired by by what they did there. But yeah, Lowry's one of those guys who has always had super positive impacts. And the reason he has that is because he does all the little things, right? He draws charges. He's a pretty good rebounder for his size. He makes the right pass. He's a good shooter, meaning he's useful on and off the ball, right? He has all these little things that kind of compound to one another um, and make him a really, really good player. And like that's, if grit is a real thing, um, and I believe it is, then it shows up. And, and there are good, like Matthew and Brady Kachuk are both amazing players in terms of um, their top line numbers and how they drive play. And I'd say a part of that is their quote unquote grittiness, right? But it's it translates to them winning puck battles. It translates to them always having the puck. It translates to making sure the opponents uh, aren't able to move cleanly or are always obstructed, right? So all that stuff should show up in the top line numbers in theory. Yeah. Just in terms of if we ever got player tracking data, is there something that I could conceive would help maybe illuminate this a little bit? If you could measure the quality of the plays that are made when this sort of player is closest to the puck carrier, that might be something. I'm thinking if this guy is the closest defender to whoever has the puck, does whoever have the puck complete fewer passes? than usual does the puck end up at a less dangerous area of the ice than it does on average i would find that kind of interesting that's a big lift that involves a lot of data we don't have it might not also show what i hope it would show that's the sort of thing that i think of but i also do think you know insofar as grit is useful and again i i agree with Irvin that it is it does play into things that we do measure already because those things correlate with winning and so should grit so, yeah. Uh, from Jesmond Jester, why did we have to trade for Andrew Raycroft? I don't know. Uh, if you do find out, please tell my therapist because it'll <laughs> help. Um, and finally, from a noted parody account, Old White Man Hockey, uh, what have been your worst takes so far of the season? Hmm. Ooh, spicy. I mentioned I the Marner pre- one. Yeah, um, I, I think don't think it was an awful think, take but it, it hasn't like he, he he sustained that level of point production which i didn't think he would do so that's i was certainly wrong about that i think that there's maybe kind of a broader question here as to is it a worse take if things develop and it gets wrong with hindsight or is it more just there was information at the time you didn't handle it correctly and you had a take that was wrong when it could have been right based on what you had in front of you. You know what I mean? That's yeah. kind of what I think of as a really bad take. Like, my opinion of Justin Hall has gone upward recently, but I don't think I was that far off based on the information I had. As I got more information, I revised my opinion. I think you have to do that. Um, you know, the Abraham Lincoln quote is, I will adopt new views as soon as they seem to be true views. That's kind of how you got to interact. So was there something that I think I was really, like, wrong about and I should have been right about knowing what I knew at the time? Uh, I mean, I've talked a lot about the Mike Babcock thing, and there were certainly things that I discounted there that I didn't give enough weight to. Yeah. I wrote a really long article about it. So you can read all about me being wrong if you want. Yeah, the Babcock one, um, I think I fall into that boat as well. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of any others that are particularly galling. Um, you know what? One that I 
that a lot of analytics people were wrong on at the were that we really heavily criticized at the time and has turned out to be not that awful a trade was Subban for Weber. Mm. Cuz yeah. I mean the, yeah. the the idea what a lot what I and a lot of people thought is Weber and Subban are probably pretty similar right now. You can take your pick as to which one you prefer, but Subban's younger, and it's probably going to be better for longer. Weber has a contract that is a huge albatross and is going to be hugely potentially hugely damaging. As it's turned mm-hmm. out, Subban has declined much faster than Weber. Now, Weber still does have that ridiculous contract, but and we didn't know this at the time, so this part is kind of an unfair to, thing to, to hold against people, but as it turns out, you're just going to be able to LTIR that. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the issue. Is like, at what point does Shea Weber sort of decide that he's maybe had enough now? And if you look at the contract, that is scheduled to happen in summer 2023. So, <laughs> if he can't do it anymore at that point, suddenly, that's probably more manageable. Yeah, but Weber's I, I do think she, a very good player yeah. still. He's aged extremely well, and he is still a number one defenseman. So, credit where it's due um, on that one. Um, I still don't like the process on that one, though. But No, no. You know, I mean... Fair enough. And, and Weber is a very, very good shooter, especially for a defenseman. Um, but I still do think they're quite dumb for building their entire power play around Shea Weber. Because, like, yeah, even though I he's a great shooter, like you're, it's a great shooter taking 5% shots. Yeah, and, and, you know, he outshoots his expected goals by a lot. Because, you know, again, he's a great shooter. But, like, it doesn't achieve as much as you would hope that it would. Now, I should say, the Montreal Canadiens power play, at least in terms of finishing percentage, which I know, arguably, you shouldn't use is up to, you know, decent now. 12th in the league at the moment. But they don't seem to show all that well by what measures we have. And so I do still think that that's probably a mistake to overuse him because they rely on him a lot. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I think that there's, like, an interesting question there in terms of, like, your worst takes. When you were really wrong then or when you've only turned out to be wrong i've certainly had examples of both but yeah it it, it varies there are also a few that some people would probably say are wrong takes that i stand by um i'm thinking of uh uh a lot of people really got on me for saying that i think matthews and elander are uh as a duo are as fine on net as Matthews and Marner. Like, I don't think that you really gain much by flipping Nylander and Marner between Matthews and Devaris. I think any way you slice it, you have a pretty good combination. I still think that's true. So, yeah, I'm going to stand by that one. But yeah. beyond that, yeah. Um, yeah, so I hope that that was uh, fun for everybody. We're going to come in right at about two hours, so that was a long podcast. Um. But yeah, we did try to answer every single question that we got. If I did somehow miss you, I am really sorry. Uh, I did my best. Uh, Thank you so much to everyone who wrote in and asked us all these questions. We really appreciate it. Yes. Um, So thank you all for listening. Thank you all for um, supporting us. As Fulman said off the top, we are very, very lucky to have, um, I guess, a fan base who enjoys us and actively engages with us. I think it's a lot more than either of us expected when we started this. So... Mm-hmm. Um, thank you very much. You can find all of mine and Fulman's stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNHFulman. We'll see you next week. <laughs>